Morning, Glory America. Bonjour. Hi, Canada. That music means it's the last radio hour of the week, and it is time for the Hillsdale Dialogue. All previous Hillsdale Dialogues are collected at HughForHillsdale.com, and all things Hillsdale are found at Hillsdale.edu, including an appeal to support the Barney Charter Schools Initiative. And it was at the annual broadcast about the Barney Schools Initiative with Dr. Larry Arn two weeks ago. That I discussed with him the fact that the election is very disturbing and that the rise of the American left, uh, somewhat illiterate about what freedom means, was a challenge. And uh, we together conspired to create a Hillsdale Dialogue series, as Dr. Arn said, that is serious about freedom. And it begins today with Dr. Larry Arn and his colleague, Dr. David Rainey. Dr. Rainey is a professor of history at Hillsdale. He holds the John Anthony Halter Chair in American History, the Constitution, and the Second Amendment. He got his B.A. from the University of Chicago, his M.A. and his Ph.D. from the University of Urbana-Champaign. And uh, I don't think you've been on with us before, Dr. Rainey, have you? Well, good morning, Mr. Hewitt. Uh, thank you so much for having me on. No, I don't. I don't believe so. Uh, this is my uh, my first time, so hopefully, uh, it uh, the maiden voyage will go smoothly. Well, please be nice to me. Doctor R never is, and so I'm just. It's an appeal to balance out the abuse I take. Doctor R, good and Merry Christmas to you. Uh, this series beginning in December of 2020, a year of unsettling developments for freedom. And and how would you characterize our intent with this series? Well, uh, everything is in doubt right now, and so we should go over everything. And everything begins with the natural right of the human being to live as a human being, which means freely. Uh, Dogs and cats don't have that option. They live by instinct or by what we tell them. We are designed to operate as a cause unto ourselves. So they start with that. And then... then, uh, when you get to America, because that, that was known with the birth of classic philosophy 3,000 years ago, but get to America. What did we do? What we did was perfect the doctrines that needed to be understood and the institutions that needed to be contrived and operated to protect our freedom. And just as that first thing is doubted, that we are, in fact, entitled to be free, so it's also true that we uh, are assailing and have weakened the institutions that defend our freedom. And that's, you know, that uh, we won't like that when that process is complete. It won't go well. And so we should stop it before it's complete. When you say, Dr. Arn, everything is in doubt, what do you mean? Well, I mean that uh, school children are taught at a young age that the truth of a thing is defined by what we think of a thing. Uh, And that, just think how, that's an extremely radical thing. It's almost, it's hard to grasp, right? So, uh, is the desk on which you're leaning your elbows in class hard and present? Uh, There's reason to doubt that, they're told. But just take an academic thing. The AP Guide for Secondary English Literature says, that the reason to read literature now is not to find objectivity or factuality, it's to find your own reality. And so that means when you read Shakespeare, uh, what's important about him, and the only thing that can be important about him, is what you think of it. And, and you know, forget that as a philosophic doctrine. 
What does it do in the classroom? Uh, it, it deprives the student of the reason to work hard to understand and appreciate Shakespeare. And so that's one reason why education flounders, but that spreads everywhere in the society. It does. And Dr. Rainey, when you teach at uh, Hillsdale in your classes on American history, the Constitution and Second Amendment, do you, do you begin with a fact-based approach as I begin my con law classes at Chapman? You've got to actually know what the decisions mean and what order they came if you're going to have an appreciation of the Constitution. Do you use chronology and fact as your basis? Well, we certainly do. Uh, <laughs> without, uh, without knowing the facts, at least the basic uh, who, what, when, where, uh, you really can't get to the why. Uh, so we certainly do that. Uh, but it's not simply a, um, a mere chronicling or a mere chronology of, of facts and figures, of course. We're very interested in the why. We're very interested in uh, uh, causality, causation, uh, what um, caused something else. And so, but you're absolutely right. Before you can get to those, those higher orders of, of thinking and analysis, uh, you have to establish a basic contextual framework. And so we spend a lot of time doing that here, uh, which unfortunately, uh, from my understanding, has become uh, rather uh, sparse at other well, schools. I, but that's I am shocked. I'm shocked when I put law students or would-be lawyers into a classroom in front of me, and they know nothing about the American founding, much less the discovery of America by the European settlers in the 1600s. They don't know a thing, not literally nothing. And in law school, of course, history begins with Marbury versus Madison in 1803. Nothing matters until Marbury versus Madison, which is, of course, a rending of the American experiment. Tear, you know, it's a tearing of the whole cloth of the American experiment. So we thought, Dr. Arn and I thought, we would begin at the beginning of Western civilization in the Americas. And so you sent me, Dr. Rainey, the laws of Virginia. And I will admit to ignorance, I thought you were going to start with the Mayflower Compact. And you sent me instead the laws of Virginia, and I'm 64 years old, and I've never laid eye on them until this week. Tell me about these. Oh, absolutely. Well, no, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm glad to do so. It's one of the uh, earliest documents in our American Heritage Reader. As you no doubt know, all of our students are uh, required for good reason to take the American Heritage as a companion uh, course, uh, a complement and continuation of the Western Heritage. And so it's one of the earliest documents in that American Heritage Reader. And the reason we included this uh, set of laws was to, to maybe perhaps in a way uh, correct some uh, misapprehensions about uh, the nature of the various colonial experiments in North America. Uh, often they're simply described um, as being uh, uh, economic ventures, strictly uh, some sort of, uh, you know, of course, nowadays it's considered uh, some sort of a money-grubbing capitalist scheme. Uh, but we wanted to make it clear that although certainly uh, the colonists intended to, um, uh, to, to generate revenue, uh, wealth from the colonies, and there's nothing wrong with that, making a living, uh, they also had other motivations as well, including, of course, uh, spreading uh, the gospel, spreading Christianity, or as Anglicans would say, spreading the, the one true religion. And so, we begin with the, the, the preface of the Laws of Virginia, which explain very clearly what those laws intend to do, not only to, to uh, basically reestablish law and order 
in a colony which was which was uh, basically rent uh, with uh, disorder as a result of the, the previous winter, where the colony was almost extinguished, so-called starving time. Uh, but uh, one of the first needs of society, of course, is is order. Uh, so this was an attempt to do that um, by the marshal of the colony, um, Sir Thomas Dale, hence uh, the fact that the laws of Virginia are also referenced as Dale's Code. But you'll notice uh, that the laws of Virginia were also an attempt to establish a certain sort of liberty that hopefully we can talk a bit uh, about later in the segment, uh, and that is not simply the ability to do what one lists or what one wishes, uh, which is something that, you know, liberty that, uh, as John Winthrop would say, we share with the beasts, right, the ability to do both, you know, bad and good. But rather, in the laws of Virginia, you see, you see very clearly showcase this idea of, of what Winthrop later calls uh, civil liberty, that is the, the liberty to do that which is just, good, and honest. And that's really what the laws of Virginia are about, basically promotion of doing that which is good, just, and honest. And it's truly a liberty. It's not license, which we have to obviously distinguish from liberty. Well, let's go back to how the London Company, which many Americans who know anything about this might know as the Virginia Company, came to be and came to put these people on the coast of Virginia during what you just referred to, the starving time. How did that all happen, Dr. Rainey? Well, it's a very, very good question. Uh, basically, the, uh, the London Company um, was, in some ways, it was a uh, product of some of the earlier voyages of, of Humphrey Gilbert and also Sir Walter Raleigh, but also even going back to the 1580s, some of the writings of um, uh, certain, uh, we call them today, <laughs> propagandists, but it didn't have negative connotations in those days. Uh, for example, those who tried to promote the selling of North America by uh, the English, uh, such as, for example, Richard Hacklett. And uh, these men believe that uh, North America was ripe for settlement for a variety of purposes, including, of course, yes, economic, uh, you might say exploitation, but uh, economic uh, use, uh, certainly promoting uh, pr proper religion, uh, but also uh, perhaps a, a vent for uh, products that were being produced by England, a vent for excess population. And so ultimately, North America became uh, the focus of those efforts. And so finally, uh, ultimately in 1606, uh, King James did uh, create a um, uh, basically a charter for the London Company uh, to uh, begin the process of settling North America. And it was done through um, a, a joint stock company, basically the, the selling of stock in that company. That's how it all began. We'll come back to the London Company when we Return America. The Hillsdale Dialogue is underway. Stay with us. Go to hillsdale.edu for all things Hillsdale. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. The Hillsdale Dialogue is underway. All things Hillsdale are found at hillsdale.edu. We begin a new series today on the foundations of American freedom and why it matters. And we're beginning in London in 1606 because that is when the London Company, which soon came to be known as a Virginia company, began as a joint stock company controlled by shareholders, investors, otherwise known as adventurers. And uh, I'm joined by Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, and Dr. David Rainey, professor of history there. Uh, all things Hillsdale are found at hillsdale.edu. Dr. Rainey, how many of these joint stock companies were they, and did they intend to, in fact, did they make money? Well, that's a great question. Uh, actually, joint stock companies were a relatively new innovation uh, at the time that uh, – uh, such a, an arrangement was created with uh, the London Company, uh, but uh, the, 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 of course, the, the promise of North America was was great, 
All right. I mean, if you think about what happened with the uh, conquistadors uh, in uh, South America, for example, even uh, with the Aztecs in Central America, many of these investors had very high hopes, you know, for being able to strike it rich in the New World. And most of the earliest settlers were uh, single uh, young men. And uh, long story short, uh, the venture was uh, not profitable. Uh, it was actually uh, a disaster. Uh, and even the introduction of tobacco into the economy in 1612 uh, didn't save it. You know, tobacco cultivation uh, was notoriously unpredictable. The markets were very volatile. And it wasn't the sort of savior to the economy that many people portray it as. So it was a very rocky start for the first, uh, I would not say a few years, but the first few decades of Virginia's history. What were they looking for? What did they expect to find when they embarked on the shore of Virginia? Well, that's a good question. Well, at first they thought that uh, they'd make contact with uh, uh, with the Indians and uh, be able to procure uh, gold, such as <laughs> Cortez had uh, in, in uh, Central America, for example. Uh, but they found that, uh, that the Indians in North America did not have uh, palaces of gold. And so the early search for precious metals uh, was essentially a bust. And so they then turned their attention to other more mundane things, uh, trying to uh, use the resources at hand, such as, of course, the, the, the vast timber resources, uh, for shipbuilding, masts, for example, for uh, the Royal Navy, also uh, pitch or tar, also used in shipbuilding, uh, but also uh, fur, fur trapping as well, um, often using um, Indians as intermediaries. Uh, and uh, even, for example, there were, there were ill-fated attempts, uh, one of James I's uh, brainchilds, uh, to try um, uh, to uh, grow uh, silkworms uh, in the New World and produce silk. And, of course, that didn't uh, work either. So uh, ultimately, the only thing that, um, that began to at least write the ship was the introduction of tobacco, uh, which, of course, uh, you know, Columbus became familiar with during his voyages and John Rolfe began to experiment with as early as 1612. But even then, again, it was, uh, it was a tough road to hoe. Uh, no pun intended, and uh, the colony was unstable for, for decades. And then before, this is the quick segment. So the starving time, what is that and what did it do to the colony? Well, it's a good question again. The uh, starving time uh, uh, nearly obliterated the colony uh, in its earliest years. Uh, it was the winter of 1609-1610. Uh, it was actually, uh, in many respects, uh, an outgrowth of the previous winter, uh, where, ironically, uh, Captain John Smith had actually righted the ship, so to speak, and had actually put the colony in more solid footing. But unfortunately, in the process, uh, he had um, antagonized the uh, local tribes, uh, the, the Confederation of uh, Algonquin tribes uh, controlled by Powhatan. Uh, he'd antagonized them through his, his rather aggressive trading practices and, in some cases, raids on Indian villages for food. And so during that winter of 1609-1610, uh, the Indians uh, retaliated. They basically killed the livestock that the settlers had around the Jamestown Palisade. Uh, the settlers were basically, in effect, locked inside of the town, inside the Palisade, uh, unable to go out and search for food, unable to hunt. And they began dying like flies to the point where they were subsisting on, uh, on mice, rats, uh, dogs, if they could find them. And even one uh, poor fellow actually, um, uh, he, he murdered his wife and actually began eating her. So uh, things oh. were terrible uh, to the point where uh, mortality rates that winter were uh, approximately 90, 88, 90 percent, somewhere in there, uh, among, I think, 500 settlers who went into that winter. Um, you know, around 50 or, or maybe 60 uh, survived, if that. It was uh, obviously very rough. When we come back, we'll talk about who turned the colony around because Virginia, I'm in the Commonwealth as we speak, and the Commonwealth thrives, and it began to thrive when law was introduced. And we'll talk about that with Dr. Larry on President of Hillsdale College. 
And the professor continues as well. Don't go anywhere, America. When we return more of this, where did we come from? Where are we going series on the Hugh Hewitt Show? Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. The Hillsdale Dialogue is underway. All things Hillsdale are collected at hillsdale.edu. And, of course, all of the conversations we've had all these many years, the Hillsdale Dialogues are collected at hughforhillsdale.com. If you go to hillsdale.edu, you can sign up for absolutely free Imprimus, the monthly speech digest that will uh, arrive at your home the old-fashioned way in the mail. And you can also enroll in all of the free video courses. It's the thing that is keeping America informed throughout the shutdown and lockdown, and homeschoolers by the millions are using them. But this today, we're starting back at the beginning to figure out what it is about America that is worth preserving and in what Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, Joined today by Dr. David Rainey, the John Anthony Halter Chair in American History, the Constitution and the Second Amendment, uh, called The Beginning, and in a time of doubt, why do we go there? I'm curious, Dr. Arn, uh, given that you are a neo-monarchist, meaning that, that you have grudgingly recognized the American Republic as preferable to the British crown, what did you make of James I's initial effort at exploiting the colonies as opposed to settling them for religious purposes? Uh, well, uh, it's uh, it's the f- uh, we 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 miss the forest for the trees, and James First opinions are one of the trees. Uh, if you just step back from all of this and think, this is one of the greatest migrations in human history, and it's also unprecedented and cannot be repeated, because a civilization picked up and moved a large part of it to a new and unknown place. And they brought all the knowledge with them that they'd had before. And these documents, these, these Virginia laws and the Mayflower Conflict Compact, they are, they are expressive of the knowledge of Western civilization that had been gathered in Europe mostly. But they brought, they brought the knowledge with them, but they didn't bring anything else. They didn't bring the aristocracy. They didn't bring the governance system. And James I, who's mentioned in the Mayflower Compact, is effectively irrelevant from the minute they get on the boat. And then you have to ask the question, why did they go? Well, you can't explain it by gold. Human beings are acquisitive wherever they are. Uh, these people in North America, different from the Spanish, they took families, right? And that's, that's something else, because a bunch of men off on their own is unstable, I mean, Lord, we have fraternities at Hillsdale College, and they behave themselves, but that's because we watch them. <laughs> and, and, uh, and, that's uh, rare that they behave themselves, too. Yes. Yeah, well, they're good, you know, but they're boys. And God, you know, put a, put a gang of boys together. And so the point is, just remember, what, one of the things that drives the later course of the American Revolution and, and, and American history to this day was the thing that drove this migration, too. People wanted a chance to live a full life of their own. And in the 18th century and 17th century, that meant land. And there was a promise of land, and you could live on the land and have your own land and farm it. And it's worth the danger of getting killed by the natives, worth the danger of starvation, because people want to live that way. And so this, this dream of realizing that in freedom and equality, that's behind it all. And if you look at these first things they did when they get over there, 
they understand they have to have law, and they understand that the law must be made by some agreement among themselves, because otherwise they're going to be despotizing people, which is the thing many of them are leaving to get away from. Now, Dr. Rainey, this colony, the London Company establishes the colony of Virginia. It is not a democracy. It is ruled by a governor and a deputy governor. And why is that form? And by the way, we're talking about years. The New York Times has taken quite a lot of deserved grape shot for its 1619 project. These years are all before those years. This is far before the 1619 project. Apparently, it doesn't exist in the eyes of the New York Times. But why did they come with governors and deputy com- uh, governors and lieutenant commanders and commanders of the British Navy? Well, I think Dr. Arn alluded to uh, a part of that answer, and that is that uh, one of the first needs, if not the first need of society, is, is order. Uh, and that's established through, uh, through law. Uh, not not arbitrary law, not capricious law, but the rule of law. And in the laws of Virginia, admittedly, we see uh, what appears to be on its surface uh, a form of, of martial law, a form of military rule. Uh, the governor uh, imposed a rather harsh discipline on his people, uh, Thomas Gates, and um, uh, Thomas Dale, the marshal, was uh, tasked with carrying that out. Uh, but I think it's important to remember here that although um, the idea of consent of the governed, as we think of it today, uh, was was uh, not present in full at that time. Still, there there are certainly uh, elements of that. Uh, but I think that misses a larger picture, and that is that that at the time, uh, whether you're talking about the Virginia uh, Enterprise or or Plymouth or Massachusetts Bay, uh, we have to understand um, how they regarded liberty. Liberty was not simply a license. You know, the ability to do. What, you, what one lists, what one wishes to do. And it wasn't even uh, the ability to do what you wish to do uh, as long as it didn't harm someone else. It wasn't that sort of libertarian mantra either. Uh, liberty, was, liberty was seen as something different. It was the ability, the ability, the God-given ability to do that which was right. And hence this biblical moral code uh, was seen as, as being a part and parcel of that. And I do want to pen just a minute on what they left. Dr. Arndt, you will know this as well as Dr. Anian better than I. They are leaving a monarchy, a monarchy that has gone through a drastic change because Elizabeth died without issue. And therefore, James I uh, had to come down from Scotland. And they were leaving um, a period where religious competition was intense and had been bloody. And they were leading a, a continent that had been threatened but had survived. Why were they leaving? Well, um, uh, England was the best monarchy and the most liberal monarchy in Europe, and it wasn't very good. And it wasn't very good for two reasons. One was, if you didn't go to the English church, and that changed, right, because there was an argument between the Catholics and the Protestants, and a lot of people died all over Europe in that argument and in England, But if you didn't go to one of the established churches, and the one that happened to be in power at the time, then then you're out, right? You can't you can't hold public office, bunch of stuff like that. And then the second thing is, you needed to be born well, born to somebody important, to have high prospects. And that was that was responsible for the great migrations out of England. Uh, England is a great story and the best story in Europe, but for us, the best story in history. Uh, and, and the thing about it was, England was liberal 
compared to the rest of the continent, not compared to America. And, and I, I love to tell my constitutional law students, we all get here from somewhere and know America. You've got to know the Jews, the Greeks, the Romans and the English. And to know the English, you've got to know that they have class. Uh, and I'm, I'm just now reading Evelyn was the sort of honor trilogy. And I really hadn't really immersed myself in a three book series on English class. But it was already in existence at the time Virginia was settled. Was it not, Dr. Arne? Yeah, it, um, um, it, it over in England, the people making the uh, making the decisions were very important people. Most of them born to be that, right? But that all disappeared when they got on the boat. Exactly. <laughs> that, that, that is the big, it's the great equalizer. A starving winter is certainly going to bring, uh, Dr. Rainey, everyone down to the same station rather quickly. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And I, I like that point about... Uh, everything changing once they got on the boat. Uh, now, there were, of course, attempts, especially with the rise of the tobacco economy. There were attempts to uh, amass large plantations and establish some sort of plantation-based aristocracy. But by and large, although they, they like to think of themselves as, as a replication of the English gentry, uh, they weren't. They were basically fooling themselves. Uh, there was still a great deal of social mobility. Uh, you could go up, but also down uh, you know, within that society, uh, as, as the tobacco economy showed. Uh, it was a boom-and-bust type economy. Uh, but the idea of trying to replicate the gentry was, uh, was ultimately a, a failure. And even though primogeniture still was, uh, uh, was still part of the uh, process of land inheritance, uh, they never were able to replicate that gentry. And, and in the end, you know, uh, you just lost the situation range. You just lost yeah. the Steelers fans, Dr. Ray. You said primogenitor. <laughs> They're going to think that that's some kind of food pasta. No, it's, it's the fact that the eldest son inherits all the land. Now, that's I want right. to get from the starving time to these laws, because the laws of Virginia, uh, which I read for the first time last night, doesn't take very long to read them. Uh, they come out of this, this period of crisis. There's no food. There are raids by the Native Americans. The Indians are killing people. There's a 90%. That's unbelievable mortality rate. The colony almost gives up. So what do they do? They write a law code. And we have two minutes on this side and seven minutes on the other side to tell people what's in this first law code of America. Well, I'll, I guess I'll, I'll start with that. Um, uh, it was uh, as, as, the, um, as we tend to tell our students from the get-go here, uh, it was obviously a law code based upon uh, strict biblical morality. In other words, what you see here is basically uh, an encapsulation of uh, Mosaic law. You see pretty much every element of the Ten Commandments somewhere within uh, Dale's code here. And we don't list, of course, all of Dale's code, so there are a few things that are, are missing here for the sake of brevity, but they're, they're all there. Uh, and once again, the idea is that uh, they, they look to tradition, right? We talk about, uh, obviously, the, the, the uh, Judeo-Christian heritage. Uh, they look to the Judeo part of that. They look to the Old Testament. Uh, what did God expect of his chosen people? Well, he expected them to act a certain way, and, and that was revealed in Scripture in the Old Testament. And so that's reflected uh, in the uh, laws of Virginia. Uh, it was seen as, uh, again, massing the wisdom of the ages. This is how God expected the people to, to live. This is what made a, a society to be orderly, stable, and based upon a proper understanding of liberty. And so it's all, it's all within the laws of Virginia. And that's how you create an orderly society, one based on uh, the rule of law. Uh, we... as, as the uh, preface says, the law is divine. It's in the preface of the laws of Virginia. We'll come back to the laws divine and the true religion when we return for the final segment of this week's Hillsdale Dialogue on the laws of Virginia. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. 
I'm joined by Dr. Larry Aron, the president of Hillsdale College this week, and his colleague who is a professor in the history department, Dr. David Rainey, who teaches the Constitution, the Second Amendment, and in the American founding. And, and indeed, I mean founding, like the American digging up the trench and building the house. And we're talking about the colony of Virginia this week. Next week, the Mayfair Compact and the Massachusetts Bay Colony. But if I can, Dr. Rainey, would you summarize for us, it, it, it became necessary to restore order to a shattered colony after 90 percent of it dies. They turned to the laws divine and to the true religion, which they understood to be Anglicanism. And what did they declare? What are the content of the first legal code of America? Uh, well, they, uh, they they first made it very clear that um, uh, that uh, God was their first duty was to glorify God and everything that He was the uh, ultimate source of all authority, uh, and so building upon that foundation, they also uh, included uh, in that uh, set of laws uh, protections uh, for the name of the king. You, you could not uh, question. Uh, the king, you could not um, uh, issue any sort of traitorous words against him. So the code uh, protected uh, the, the person of the king and also the institution of the monarchy. But also you see um, uh, essentially, you know, again, all of the, the Ten Commandments somehow codified within the laws of Virginia from uh, some of the first and most important in the eyes of uh, the settlers, uh, the um, relationship of the settlers with God. You could not take the name of God in vain. You had to respect the church. Uh, you had to uh, attend church services twice daily. Uh, and if you didn't, uh, you were punished. Uh, if, first, you'd actually lose um, your, your allotment from the, the common store. Uh, then, then you would be um, whipped for a second offense. And then you could be uh, basically uh, thrown in jail for up to six months. They took that very seriously. But then you see also throughout the rest of the laws, uh, you see prohibitions on uh, murder, uh, adultery, uh, theft, um, bearing false witness, uh, things of that sort. And even transgressions against Indians, for example, uh, ravishing or, or raping an Indian woman was punishable by death. And so there's a recognition here of the inherent dignity. I, I want to pause there because yes, sir. Uh, to Dr. Arn, I found, again, I've never read this before in last night, and I paused at law number nine, transgressions against non-colonists punished by death, the rape of Indian women. Uh, that means they believed in natural law. And I, it is interesting to me the first legal code understands every human being, even those who they are depending upon and who they are attempting to suppress. They may not be treated like chattel. Uh, well, that, of course, right? And they, I mean, they also had an interest in that. Human beings have an interest in justice. And if you kill your neighbors, they will kill you back. And these laws, these Virginia laws, are different than the Mayfire Compact because they're in the middle of an emergency. It's like judging what is English government like if you look at the laws of 1941. There was rationing, there was restrictions on movement, right? It was an emergency. But <laughs> breaking through that and, you know, the hierarchical nature of these laws and their uh, uh, the the uh, almost dictatorial powers of the people at the top, those are all a product of the fact that people are starving to death. But it, 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 the Mayflower Compact, which is, you know, a couple of years later, what is it, nine years later, that that uh, that's more indicative, right? Because before they get there, and knowing it's going to be the devil of a thing, they have to all agree to something. And because they've all agreed, then it won't be despotic. And and so, 
you have to put these two episodes together to get the full flavor of the thing. Of the of the beginning, and we will, right. we're n- next week. We're going to go to the Mayflower Compact. I want to finish this week, though, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Doctor Rainey, by emphasizing the church and the state were one. I mean, this is not our practice today. We separated from that largely because of the genius of Madison and Jefferson. But we, this is not the case in 1610. They are one. Orthodox Christianity is the law of the land. Twice daily church attendance, uh, Sabbath in, uh, strictly enforced. The Ten Commandments are there. There is a one true church. The beginning of American civilization is with Christianity. That's that's correct. And uh, I try to make the connection with my students going back to the Reformation. If you look at the writings of uh, Calvin in his famous institutes and elsewhere, uh, he he makes it very clear that um, that civil government is something that Christians should not only participate in uh, and, and not think of as being something unclean because it's it's mundane, but um, the role one of the chief roles of the the civil government is to promote the, the true religion. Uh, so, so we see that certainly here. You're right. Uh, there is a linking of church and state. There, there are mandatory um, uh, mandatory requirements for for all residents to attend uh, services. Uh, but uh, I wouldn't I wouldn't call it a, a theocracy. You still have obviously civil officers um, who are in charge of civil affairs and and church officials in charge in, in charge of, of church matters. Uh, so we don't want to call it a theocracy, for example. Much like you know we'd say the same thing about Massachusetts Bay or, or Plymouth. Uh, uh, the pastors were one thing, and ministers were one thing, and, and civil authorities were another. But definitely not a theocracy. Yeah, definitely not a theocracy, but a state that is founded on an understanding of uh, right order and divine principle. Next week, the Mayflower Compact. Some of you are surprised we didn't begin there. Well, it didn't come first. The laws of Virginia came first. And come back next week to the next Hillsdale Dialogue to hear more. In the meantime, hillsdale.edu for everything. Thank you, doctor. Thank you, doctor. President. And we'll be back next week on the next Hugh Hewitt Show.